much like the sermon that I preached on singleness um, and the sermon that I preached on universalism, this one was written pretty well in advance of this week. Um, it was a sermon without a home, uh, and I've been waiting on it for a while, I think, and uh, just never really found a good place for it, but it ended up working out pretty well, I think, um, that this is the week when we talk about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, so here goes nothing. Um, please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In one of the most famous Christian defenses of slavery that was circulated throughout the U.S. before the Civil War, the Reverend Richard Fuller decried abolitionist Christians as enthusiasts. When abolitionist Christians said slavery is a sin, Fuller argued, they were making an immoderate, excessive, and indefensible moral claim. When abolitionist Christians condemned the torture and rape of the enslaved, arguing that slavery was an inherently violent institution and could not be otherwise, Fuller claimed that they were surely over-exaggerating. True, Fuller said, some slave owners did rape and torture their slaves. But when abolitionist Christians pointed this out, Fuller thought, they were taking aim not at the system of slavery itself, but its abuses. It was only because of their lack of moral and intellectual clarity that the abolitionists could not tell the difference between the two. If they could, then they would see that there are good masters out there that made the lives of enslaved African Americans dramatically better. This is because those masters provided for their material needs, allowed for their conversion to Christianity, and provided them with the benefits that came with the adoption of civilized Western culture. In other words, abolitionists just could not see the good in slavery. They were trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. What slavery needed was not abolition, in other words, but reform and proper regulation. Fuller's words mortify us today, and rightly so. If any of you are curious as to why my, uh, my doctoral uh, qualifying exams were so difficult, it was because I spent 10 hours a day reading stuff like this. Um, we rightly recognize them, Fuller's argument as paternalistic, racist, and naive. We ask how it could be that a person so familiar with the text of Scripture could ignore the message of Isaiah that true worship of God is, to quote Isaiah, to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the ropes of the enslaved, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. That's from Isaiah 58, 6. We might ask how it is that, that Reverend Fuller missed the fact that time and time again, the prophets declared that when the Messiah came, he would release all those in captivity from every form of bondage, including the bondage of slavery. Or how, could it, how it could be that he failed to see that Jesus himself had said uh, that this call to release the oppressed from bondage was at the heart of his own ministry. To quote from Jesus in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to, because she has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to set the oppressed free, and declare the year of the Lord's favor. We may be thankful that our Anabaptist forebearers, both Mennonites and Quakers, jointly condemned slavery as an inherently violent institution and rightly saw that Jesus came to release all people from bondage, taking a very, very different pathway than Reverend Fuller did. But the topic I'd like to bring up today is not slavery, even though 
for those of you who know me, I talk about slavery quite frequently as my main area of study. Or rather, I, I did come here to talk about slavery, just not slavery as we might think of it. I mentioned Dr. Fuller because I want you to pay attention to his arguments that abolitionists are too enthusiastic, that they're excessive, that they're immoderate, that they're unrealistic, that they fail to distinguish between the abuses of a system and the system itself, that they fail to see the good the system brings, uh, that they are calling for abolition when they should be calling for reform. When the system we're talking about is slavery, Fuller's arguments seem absurd. Any goods Fuller sees coming out of enslavement either aren't real goods or they can surely be obtained in other ways. Abolitionists weren't immoderate, they weren't excessive. Slavery should be condemned as a moral evil, full stop. Um, they weren't being unrealistic because we as human beings really, really can live without enslaving other human beings. Uh, abolitionists had the vision to see that all of this was possible. Um, and abolitionists were right not to differentiate between a system and its abuses when it came to slavery. Slavery really is an irredeemably violent institution. There is no making it better. But what about in our own day when the call for abolition comes against not slavery, but against the prison instead of against slavery? Suddenly, direct parallels to Fuller's arguments can be found in abundance. Incarcerating a person, we hear, is different from enslaving someone. So those who call for an end to the prison as an institution really are failing to distinguish between the abuse of a system and the system itself. But can we be so sure that it is possible to draw a bright line between incarceration and enslavement? There has been, and always will be, a species relationship between the two that is very, very difficult to suss out throughout the history of both of the, these two institutions. These two institutions are remarkably similar both in their material conditions, you, you put a person in chains for both of them, um, and in the justifications for their existence. In fact, as Angela David pointed out decades ago, this relationship is perfectly embodied in the weird caveat that many individuals don't pay attention to that exists in the 13th Amendment. Um, here's the text of the 13th Amendment quoted verbatim. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. The U.S. Constitution, in other words, explicitly states that from a legal standpoint, incarceration is, an, is a form of enslavement. Um, in fact, it's on, the only legally permitted form of enslavement. Before you dismiss this as an overstatement, you might be interested to know that people in the ancient world tended to define uh, incarceration in the same way. Uh, remember the passages that I shared from Luke and Isaiah, the ones that say that when the Messiah comes, he'll set all the captives free? The term that's translated captives is sometimes tra translated prisoners. It's also sometimes translated as uh, slaves. Um, that's because captivity in the biblical sense, the term that is used in both Greek and Hebrew, refers to all forms of human bondage. It means enslavement. It means incarceration. It means occupation by one of the empires. Uh, Jesus has come to set humanity free from all of those forms of captivity, according to uh, both the Gospels and the Messianic passages in the Prophets. 
When the Messiah comes, he will abolish all of these forms of captivity. We all know of the evils of mass incarceration. This is something that I'm sure has been brought up several times in the, in the circles in which we, we, we find ourselves. We know that black and indigenous folks are, for, uh, are locked up at rates much higher than whites. We know that that is an injustice. But do we believe that the prison as it exists in our own time itself is an injustice? The prison is an inherently violent institution, and we know this. It's generally known within our culture. Think of the, the jokes that you hear ubiquitously throughout our culture that make uh, references to prison rape, um, as though it were something that would be, that, that is, is funny. Jokes of don't drop the soap in prison, uh, of, in prison showers, that kind of variety of joke. These jokes are based in a reality, and we realize this reality, that those in, who are incarcerated are submitted to horrendous violence, and especially sexual violence. When an individual is incarcerated, he is subject not only to various forms of violence from fellow inmates and prison guards, but his every move is manipulated both by the guards and by the physical environment in which he's in. The institution, just as it's set up in its physical form is not aimed at rehabilitation. It teaches prisoners that violence and manipulation are acceptable ways of achieving com the compliance of those around them. As Howard Zare once put it, the prisoners who have the best chance of reintegrating into society after they are released are those who resist the system most strenuously while they are incarcerated. He was thinking of individuals who act out, who resist the prison's violent discipline. Further, there is an urgent need to end what's oftentimes referred to as the prison industrial complex, a perverse merger of the interests of media, large corporations, and the criminal legal system. The result of this merger is that incarceration becomes profitable, and the incarceration rate is driven by economic incentives and not the crime rate. Reoffending actually becomes profitable under this system, and therefore, the system encourages the reoffending re and, re and resists rehabilitation in various different ways. If you're interested in learning more about it, there's um, an African-American Mennonite by the name of James Samuel Logan who wrote a book called Good Punishment with a question mark in the title, um, which delves into this, this phenomenon of the prison industrial complex quite deeply. Likewise, prisons have an atrocious public safety record. They demonstrably do not make any of us safer. In fact, they produce traumatized people who are more likely to commit things that are defined as offenses in the future. They can't be reformed. They have to be abolished. Likewise, it will not do us any good to talk about prison abolition without talking about police abolition. Here I'm just going from one controversial topic to another. Because one of the primary reasons why the police exist as an institution is to incarcerate individuals. Many of us have marched in the movement for black lives. We've marched for an end to police brutality. But the question is, do we believe that policing as we know it itself is unjust? To quote the prison abolitionist Paul Butler, we know that police don't solve crimes. When it comes to murder, they try, but even then they're not particularly effective. That was the full quote from Butler. When Butler said this, he was referring to the fact that the murder closure rate, the percentage of murder cases where a suspect is actually arrested and charged, hovers between 30 and 40% in most US cities. So for the vast majority of murders, there is no individual that is charged. 
I, know of no, I also know of no major U.S. city where the murder closure rate is above 60%. That includes the, and those statistics, when, in, when charges are actually brought against an individual, those include cases where a person is arrested, charged, and is later definitively exonerated of the charge of murder, say through the work of an innocence project. Since that statistic includes wrongful arrests and forced confessions, which is a larger problem, I think, within the US criminal legal system than we oftentimes admit, the rate at which police actually solve murders is, is significantly lower, though I, I couldn't provide you with an estimate of what they actually are. In other words, the majority of individuals who murder someone get away with it in the United States. Um, but this is actually something that most police forces will invest resources in. But as Butler suggested, when it comes to what are oftentimes considered lesser crimes, police really do not try to solve them. It's, they're not made priorities by most police departments in most major cities. And anyone who has lived in a major city and reported a bike stolen knows this. A detective will come and take down a statement, file a report, unless, and unless you are extremely lucky, you will never see that stolen bike again. This is because police agencies don't expend resources predominantly upon solving crimes. Detectives, whose job it is to focus on solving crimes, typically make up only about 15% of the officers in any given police department. And unless they are working on a murder case, those detectives will typically spend their time filing reports for crimes they know will likely go unsolved. If police are meant to solve crimes, they are not particularly efficient at it, as Butler said. So what do police actually do? Well, to quote Alex Vitale, police exist to preserve the existing social order by managing and even producing inequality. This entails policing the poor and the non-white. It entails policing the homeless and enforcing statutes that amount to criminalizing poverty. It entails the utilization of intimidation and suppression tactics against protests for labor and racial justice. It entails over-policing predominantly black neighborhoods. All of these been, have been prominent roles the police have played in society since their inception. Now think back to the Reverend Fuller's arguments that I listed at the top of this sermon. Does the voice in your head, as, as, as you're processing what I'm saying here, present you with the same arguments that he made when you hear the call to abolish prisons and police? Are they saying that abolition is immoderate, that it's excessive, that it's unrealistic, that it fails to distinguish between a system and its abuses, that it fails to see the good that prisons and police produce, that prisons and police don't need to be abolished, they just need to be reformed. If you hear that voice in your head, and believe me, I, I, even as an individual who's committed to this position, I hear it in my head all the time, um, let me ask you, how is that voice different than Fuller's? If you think about it, Fuller's defense of slavery was far, far more rational than the modern defense of police and prisons. Fuller had basically all of human history on his side. When Fuller defended slavery, he was defending an institution that had existed as long as we, we as a species have been on this planet. Slavery had existed in the overwhelming majority of human societies when Fuller made this argument. The abolitionists who were arguing for the end of slavery were really on historically shaky ground. How did they know that humanity could get on without slavery? They had, a, they had very few examples of societies that were actually able to pull that off. 
Police and prisons, however, are extraordinarily young institutions in the forms that we know them. The first policing organization was founded in London by Sir Robert Peel in only 18, 1829, and the first modern prison, as in the penitentiary, came about around the same time. It depends, you, you read the material, it depends on which one you choose first um, as the first modern prison. Um, but no matter how you slice it, the, institution abolition, the institutions that abolitionists are asking to bring an end to are only around 200 years old. Human beings have existed without them for most of our history, and it's likely that we'll be able to exist without them again someday, given different social, economic, and political circumstances. When our Mennonite forebears declared slavery immoral, they were making a much more radical, much more untested, much more fragile, and much more unrealistic stance than I'm taking right now. And yet, and yet, their vision of the Messiah who rejects all forms of violence and sets all captives free necessitated that they have a radical imagination when it comes to what is possible in society. It necessitated that they envision what seemed to, to most as the height of the impossible, improbable, pie-in-the-sky thinking, uh, a world without slavery, a world where the violence of slavery wasn't just a regrettable but necessary evil. And when you put it in that context, they were the ones who took a radical leap into the unknown. And we now know that they were right to do so. In comparison, police and prison abolitionists are just taking some reasonable baby steps to that gigantic leap of faith. But then Christians have always known that really, if you think about it, we can get along without prisons and we can get along without police. It was a commonplace in early Christianity that Christ had given the church the things that make for peace based on the passage from Luke for today. And they defined the things that make for peace as a set of convictions, techniques, and practices that allowed the church to resolve conflict nonviolently in a world where violence was thought to be necessary. Christ made a society without violence possible through his death and resurrection. Consider the following statement from Athanasius's classic treatise on the Incarnation, which was written in the fourth century. He's talking about recent converts to Christianity here. Back when they worshiped idols, the Greeks and barbarians were always at war with one another and were even cruel to their own kind. But a strange thing has happened. Since they came over to the school of Christ, they've laid aside their murderous cruelty and they no longer even think of war. On the contrary, all is peace among them and nothing remains except the desire for friendship. Those who hear the teaching of Christ turn from fighting to farming. And instead of arming themselves with, with swords, they extend their hands in prayer. It was a common argument, this kind of argument that, that Athanasius is making here, among the, what are called, oftentimes called the apologists in early Christianity, that Christ had given the church the resources to live without violence. That is why Christians learned war no more in fulfillment to the prophecies of Isaiah. And because Christians were committed to the resolution of conflict without recourse to violence, it was improper to submit a person to violence, even the violence of incarceration. Here are the words here of the church father Tertullian on what a Christian could not do if they served as a judge. We may grant that someone could hold such a position, that is, be a judge, but he would have to avoid the functions of his office, that is, without sentencing anyone to capital punishment, without taking honors, without condemning or judging, and without putting anybody in chains or submitting them to torture. 
That last part, a Christian judge cannot put anyone in chains or submit them to torture, is directly relevant to what I'm talking about here. Tertullian didn't know the prison, at least the institution that we call the prison that exists in our day. The institution that we, as we know it, didn't exist in our day, and only by analogy can you say that prisons existed in Tertullian's day. And still, he knew that the violence of incarceration had no place in the Christian community. If we cannot name prison abolitionism and police abolitionism as Christian commitments, I am afraid for us. I am afraid that we will be a double shame to both our Christian forebearers and to our Christian descendants. Christians like Tertullian will not understand how we could have seen incarceration or policing as anything other than a systemic evil. Did we not learn the things that make for peace from our Lord Jesus Christ? Did we not understand that as Christians we could not submit others to chains? Similarly, I worry that Christians hundreds of years from now who live in societies that have figured out how to get on without prisons and without police will look at us the way that we look at Reverend Fuller. They will be horrified at us for not seeing that anything good that comes from prisons either isn't a real good or can be obtained through other and better means. They will be horrified at our paternalism. They will be horrified at our lack of empathy with those who suffer under the violence of police and prisons and they will be horrified at our lack of imagination. They'll be horrified that we simply could not think of a way to solve our social problems other than by locking people in cages and by sicking violent men with guns on them. And by now, we have had ample evidence to know that reform measures for police and prisons simply do not work. It would take me longer than is prudent to unpack here, but a short inventory but as a short inventory, here are a list of reforms that have had no noticeable effect on the frequency of incidences of police brutality against people of color. Body cameras don't work. Citizen review boards don't work. Banning chokeholds does not work. Implicit bias trainings do not work. Community policing initiatives do not work. Officer diversification initiatives don't work. And the list goes on and on and on. If you want to talk about specific examples that I can give of any of those that have come out of my research, I'd be more than happy to talk with you about it. And to give you a sense of exactly how little reforms do for curbing the abuses of the prison system, consider the following. With a population of around 330 million people, the United States is home to about 4% of the inhabitants of planet Earth. And yet, with a prison population of around 2 million, the United States is home to almost 25% of the world's prisoners. 4% of the overall world's population, a quarter of its prisoners. We believe in putting people in chains more than any other people group on this planet. Surely that's too many people in prison. And so what can we do to reduce that number? Well, according to the abolitionists Vincent Lloyd and Joshua Doubler, the three most radical reforms on offer short of abolition are these. First of all, we could release every person in state and federal custody who is incarcerated solely due to a nonviolent drug offense. We could reduce every pretrial defendant sitting in jail solely because they are unable to make bail. And we could release every black person in federal and state prisons. The first measure fully really will roll, would roll back the war on drugs. The second is a necessary step to ending the war on poverty. And the third would roll back the new Jim Crow. 
If we did all three of these things, and nobody is talking about doing all three of these things, all three proposals are considered extremely radical in most states, it would reduce our prison population by just over one million people if we did all three of those things. That's a huge step forward, and it would be a, a relief compared to what we have now. But what it would not do, however, is end mass incarceration, even if we did all three of those things. Even by effectively cutting our prison population in half, we would still be a, a nation with 4% of the world's population and around 14% of the world's prisoners. We would still lock up a far greater portion of our population than the vast majority of countries in the world with a prison population three times that of France and four times that of Germany. It is usually at this point that folks ask, so what's the alternative? And abolitionists have already come up with a surprising array of evidence-based answers. It's just a question of whether there's political will to actually attempt them. Community-based anti-violence initiatives and credible messenger programs, which, which uh, send unarmed individuals who are trained in de-escalation techniques into situations where violence might break out, can reduce homicides and gun violence without contributing to mass incarceration. Trained social workers can intervene in mental health crises without resorting to violence. Drug treatment programs can help get people clean. Investing in housing, education, and jobs actually reduces the crime rate. Hikes and police forces really don't do very much to it. These are actual evidence-based solutions, and they work way, way more efficiently than either prisons or cops. As I said before, the evidence overwhelmingly shows that the prison, at least as we know it, causes recidivism. It actually makes us all less safe. And putting more cops on the street doesn't seem to have any discernible effect on the crime rate, no matter where it happens. Further, investing in policing is a ridiculously expensive way about doing, of doing nothing about violent crime. Milwaukee PD gets full, a full half of the city's budget every year. Half. Think about that for a second. Think about how rampant police brutality is in the Milwaukee Police Department. If you can't do your job without killing black civilians, putting them in cages, and submitting them to torture while receiving half of a city's budget, you don't deserve to exist as an institution. You don't deserve for us to invest more money in you for body cameras or for implicit bias training. You just need to go. How much money would it take to do the job properly? 75% of a city's budget? 100% of a city's budget? It's just too much to ask. And while that budget is, is, is running, we, we're operating with social programs that are ludicrously underfunded that could have a, a, a more substantive impact on public safety. Fortunately, all the alternatives to policing that I've mentioned above have had a better impact on lowering violent crime, even when cities have underinvested in them. In other words, you get more for less with violence prevention and intervention programs. Um, with housing, jobs, education, mental health, and drug treatment services than you do with police and prisons. Which is why Wisdom and MICA are currently running a justice reinvestment campaign that aims at closing down three prisons in Wisconsin and reallocating the money for alternatives to incar incarceration. And even for abolitionists, emergency services of various sorts will still respond to crises like traffic accidents. Those emergency services just hopefully won't involve cops. 
No abolitionist I know of is in favor of getting rid of all first responders. They just want unarmed first responders. All of those are evidence-based solutions which work demonstrably better than policing. But I realize that most individuals don't form their beliefs about police and prisons based on evidence. I have abundant experience to the contrary. I cannot tell you the number of times people have asked me for alternatives. I've given them some alternatives. And then they will come back to me two days later and say, yeah, but you abolitionists have no alternative ideas. I give them alternatives and they just don't hear alternatives. And I think that likely that happens because they lack the imagination to see the alternatives as alternatives. So it's a, the, the battle, I think, is really a matter of what our social imagination is and not necessarily of providing good statistics. And it needs to be said part of the reason why they lack that good social imagination is because of the way in which our social imagination gets formed for those of us who are white. White folks are basically taught that the only credible solution to most social emergencies that arise is to call the cops. Anything else might be considered doing nothing. Our social imagination, in many ways within the US, has been copified, if you want to make up a term for it. But I, I, I hold out hope, especially for communities like this, because I think that we, as Mennonites, are better positioned to help foster a social imagination that is different than that social imagination. Returning to the theme, God's ways are not our ways. There's the recognition of that within this community. After all, abolition is already in, uh, in our denominational DNA as Mennonites. Toward the end of his book on prison abolition, Vincent Lloyd marveled that as a black Christian with no connection to the Anabaptist tradition, whenever he shows up at protests that are calling for the end of the prison, he always finds himself surrounded by Mennonites. It's something that always happens almost by default. That recognition from somebody who is outside of our denomination speaks volumes from where our social imagination has already led us, from, place, from where it has already taken us. As a people that wish to champion the things that make for peace, I hope that we can continue that trend. I hope we can continue to foster a social imagination that is committed to dealing with public safety issues without recourse to violence. The question is, how do we do that? <laughs>